Hi, everyone. I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Cape Up. You know what? I think we need a little levity. So sit back and have a listen to my conversation at the Aspen Ideas Festival in June with Valerie Jarrett about her book, Finding My Voice. The former senior advisor to President Obama writes about, and we talked about, her upbringing, her historic family, her failed marriage, and the best hire she ever made, Michelle Obama. You can hear all of the good career and life advice she has to offer right now. All right, we've been looking forward to this for weeks now. So long. Hello, everybody. We cannot see you unless you're in the first or second row, but we know you're there. So thank you for coming out and spending a little bit of the evening with us. All right. So I just want to dive in because a major message of your book comes in on page 11. For those of you who have the book, please turn to page 11. (laughs) And you write on that page that your father, quote, had experienced success based on merit and hard work, just as my mother had years earlier by the time she graduated from college. And thanks to both of them, I grew up believing that was possible. It's much easier to be what you see. My parents were role models, and they gave me the early impression that my potential in life was limited only by my willingness to work hard and be resilient, combined with a good bit of luck. My mom and dad had taken me across the color line and around the world, showing me what was possible so that I could dare to imagine any kind of life I wanted. And so there's no better way to start this conversation than talking about your parents, Jim Bowman and Barbara Taylor, and also the fact that you were born in Iran. So why on earth were you born in Iran? And what took Jim Bowman and Barbara Taylor to Iran in the first place? I get that a lot. Like, what on earth were you doing there? So that's where my mother was where she gave birth. So that's why I was (laughs) born there. And my parents, well, let's see. So Barbara and Jim Bowman. My mother grew up in Chicago and my father grew up in Washington, D.C. And they met and fell in love and got married right after my mother finished college. And my father was doing his residency in Chicago. My father got signed up for the military and he was in the Army. And when he was leaving the Army... A couple years later, he was looking for a job at a major teaching hospital in the United States. He wanted to do research. He was a pathologist by training. And he could not find a job at a major teaching hospital in a position that would be comparable to his white counterparts. And so he and my mom, who I will tell you are adventuresome spirits to say the least, decided, well, let's look for opportunities outside of the United States. And so after much due diligence and searching, he landed a job offer chairing the Department of Pathology and helping to start a brand new hospital in Shiraz, Iran. And so off they went. They knew nothing about the government, the language, the culture. They'd never been any further than Europe by that point in time. Their family said, don't go. What are you thinking about? Now, obviously, the United States and Iran had very strong diplomatic relations at the time. Thank goodness. And so off they went. And so he went from being considered a black doctor with a brick on his head, to an American physician judged by the merit of his accomplishments. And he thrived in Shiraz. And I was the second baby born in the Namazi hospital. They practiced on some other baby first. (laughs) We're still not quite sure what happened there, but I came along as number two. And we lived there until I was five. And from there, my father, while in Iran, he started doing research on fava beans 
We're not going to talk about the fava bean research, but look it up if you want to. It was groundbreaking research, and it caught the attention of folks at the Galton Labs at University College of London. And so after five years, my parents decided it was time to start migrating their way back home. So they went to London for a year. And don't you know, he gave some paper at an international conference while he was at the Galton Labs, and it caught the attention of the dean of the University of Chicago Medical Center. I know. And he got offered a tenure-track position in my mother's hometown in the community where my grandmother and my aunt and a huge extended family had settled when the restrictive covenants were deemed unconstitutional and black people in Chicago were free to move anywhere. They all moved into Hyde Park. And so there we went. And it's interesting because when I, I was growing up, my dad always said to me, sometimes the shortest distance to where you want to go means you have to be prepared to take the long way around. Well, they certainly took the long way around, but he spent the rest of his career right where he always wanted to be at the University of Chicago. Well, and he was the first African-American to receive tenure at the University of Chicago's Division of Biological Sciences. Thank you very much. So I can't remember if it's before they went to Iran. I think it's after they came back and he went to work and they told him not to come in the oh, front no, door. No, this when was, was before. That? before. So when my father went to Chicago, he was the first African-American, a lot of that. He was a trailblazer to do his residency at St. Luke's Hospital in Chicago. And that's where he and my mom actually fell in love and decided to get married. And... They told him he could not live in the dorm for the other residents, which was on the property, because he's black and he's the only black one there. And they said, well, you can't live with the other residents. So he had to commute to work five miles back then in the black community by streetcar. Not an easy thing to do. While everybody else is getting a good night's sleep, he spent an hour each way on the streetcar. And then they also said you have to come in the back door. And he's like, you know what? I am not going in the back door. That is a bridge too far for me. And so the first day of work, he went in the front door, and no one said anything. And that's kind of how Chicago was. They had these rules, but if you didn't abide by them, maybe something happened, maybe it didn't. And so the next day when he showed up at work, all of the black folks that worked in the hospital, so the orderlies and the nurses and the administrators were all gathered in the front of the hospital. And as his story goes, everybody walked in the front door, and that was the end of that rule. And so that is a, you use the, the perfect word here, and that's trailblazer. My favorite chapter in the book is entitled Inheritance, or The Inheritance. And her father isn't the only trailblazer in the family. I'm just going to read this, and you correct me where I get it wrong. Your great-grandfather, Robert Robinson Taylor, became the first black student to attend MIT. 1888. And his father was a slave. His father was born a slave born a in slave. Wilmington, North Carolina, was freed during, after the Civil War, and started to work as a carpenter and decided that the path forward was education for his son. And so he saved enough money. And who knows why he thought of MIT, but that's what he thought of. And my great-grandfather was accepted, and then he went to MIT. And I used to always imagine, what was that train ride from Wilmington to MIT like for my great-grandfather. And what was his father thinking, seeing his child go off north where I'm sure he had never been before? Mm -hmm. So he was a trailblazer. We'll keep on Robert Robinson Taylor. He then went on to become America's first accredited black architect. He was hired by Booker T. Washington to build buildings at Tuskegee Institute. Right, that's what I, what? When I was like, what? Is that what you right? said? Right? I know. 
But wait, there's more. Your great-great-grandfather, Victor Rochon, was one of the first black legislators voted into the Louisiana House of Representatives during Reconstruction. But wait, there's more. Your grandfather, Robert Rochon Taylor, graduated from the University of Illinois with a degree in business, and he is the person for whom the Robert Taylor houses were named for. Yeah, not our proudest moment as a family. Which you write about in the book. And I think it's either you or your mother, like it pained either of you to drive by. Oh my God. Well, so my grandfather, just for a second, was a businessman and he was successful in banking and insurance and he was asked to chair the Chicago Housing Authority that oversees all the public housing in Chicago. And he had a vision for public housing that involved making sure that it architecturally blended into the community so that it didn't stick out, it was indistinguishable. He thought they should offer social services and job training and opportunities so that it would be a temporary way station and people could move on from there. He believed that there should be strict rules of behavior and conduct and screening. So he was kind of a person way before his time. And finally, he resigned from the Housing Authority in frustration because he couldn't get the Chicago City Council, no surprise to allow him to build housing in areas that were white under the restrictive covenants. All the black people lived in one place and all the white people lived somewhere else. And so he resigned. And he also believed that housing should be low density and that you should have a front yard and a backyard and a sense of ownership and feel responsibility. And that doesn't come with big high-rise monstrosities. And so there was a certain irony six years after his death when Mayor Daley dedicated the largest public housing development, 16 high-rise buildings right along the Dan Ryan Expressway in Chicago, and he named them after my grandfather. And so I attended the opening, and it was all these mixed emotions. There were people who were moving out of horrible tenements into these brand new buildings. And for those families, this seemed like a step up and and a sense of progress. But I overheard my grandmother and my mother and my aunt talking. And the conversation was refreshed every time on the nightly news, you'd see Robert Taylor Holmes always associated with something terrible. And they said that it was the exact opposite of his vision Mm -hmm. for public housing. And that's your, your father. Robert Taylor is successful in real estate and banking, became the first black chairman of the Chicago Housing Authority in 1941. And I'm sorry, that's your, that's your grandfather. grandfather, your grandfather, who is your, your mother's father, Barbara Taylor. She went to Sarah Lawrence. She's an educator. She met and married your father on June 17, 1950, just 69 years ago last week. Talk about your mother, Barbara Taylor, now Barbara Bowman. Well... First of all, she's 90, which is hugely important, right? She made it to 90. She still works full time. I know. She goes to work every day. She drives herself. That's another story. (laughs) I'm trying to get her to ride lift. I'm on the board of lift. I'm like, Mom, you could ride a lift and you could go and come anytime you want to. She's like, I like to drive myself. But that says a a lot about Barbara Bowman. She's also quite frugal. So, for example, when I uh, went to college, she calculated what every class cost. I mean, like every day, every class. And she gave it to me on a piece of paper and said, if you are ever tempted to cut class, this is what it's going to cost your father and me. But my parents loved me unconditionally. 
provided me with an enormous safety net to take all kinds of chances, just as they had, uh, knowing that they would catch me. And they set very high expectations in terms of effort, as Jonathan mentioned early on. They didn't care what I ended up doing. They just wanted me to work hard and be determined and resilient and give it my best, and that that was no guarantee. And my parents said, look, you have to work twice as hard. They never finished that sentence, but I knew what they meant. But if luck breaks your way, then maybe the sky is the limit. And don't let hard work prevent you from trying for your goal. And so that was kind of the spirit of how they raised me. And and my mom and my dad are polar opposites in only one way, in that my dad sees the glasses like 99% full, always. And my mother, no matter how good things are, she is planning for the disaster. And in fact, the worst fight they ever had was over how they were going to spend the lottery proceeds from a lottery that they had not yet nor did ever win. (laughs) My dad had all these expansive plans and my mom was like paying the taxes on it and setting up trust accounts and I think maybe $5 was left over and they literally had an argument. They stomped upstairs fussing about this lottery proceeds and I was like shaking my head. It was very embarrassing. My boyfriend was home from law school, staying at our home, and he's like, do they fight like this all the time? I said, I've actually never seen anything quite like it, but I know one thing, they will not go to bed angry. And in fact, they did figure out how to make up, and they never won that lottery. But they had very, very different approaches to the world, and I think I tilt towards my father and my optimism, but my mom always said, too, like, if things don't go your way, you'll be fine. Mm-hmm. And there was that sense of, even within her, with her practicality, that you just have to figure out another way. If one way doesn't work, just like they went off to Iran, well, then you swerve and figure out your own path. Well, you talk about the safety net of family and community there in Chicago, but that didn't mean you were immune to hardship. And by hardship, I'm thinking about early on when you've come back to Chicago oh, yeah. from Iran and from London, and now here you are, I think you say in the book, this fair-skinned, freckle-faced, redhead kid with the British accent. And it did not go over well in Shoesmith Elementary School, let me tell you. I think you opened one chapter with a taunt from one of the kids. Hey, Red! Hey, Red! Yep, and I knew it was ha- going to happen because it happened all the time. She grabbed me from behind, knocked me down. And fortunately, I had a younger cousin. She was six months younger and about 10 pounds lighter. And she would continuously come to my rescue, which was A, embarrassing, but be very helpful because she had two older <laughs> siblings so she could fight. And I had not learned how to fight, but I got bullied for, well, the way I look, the fact that I came from, I was born in a country no one had ever heard of. The British accent, well, I lost that by the first week. I was like, that's not going over very well here. And I just wanted to be like everybody else. And I think there are a lot of kids out there that feel different. And I have a sensitivity to that because I felt that way. Even though I had these loving parents and a grandmother who was my rock, Puddin', I called her, this extended family, but I still didn't feel like I quite fit in. And even though they loved me tightly, when I went to school, it was tough there for a minute. And then I figured it out. And unfortunately, I stopped, well, I told you about the British accent, but I also stopped speaking Farsi. And whenever my mother would speak in public, and she knew, she was so proud that she was fluent in this language in a country she'd only lived in for six years. And so when she wanted to say something to me, and you parents out there, you know the thing, you didn't want anybody else to understand, she would speak to me in Farsi. And usually it was, sit down, be quiet, come here, behave. But I would shudder when she would speak in Farsi. And it took me decades to appreciate that, you know, we are our stories. 
I mean, we are all our stories. And whether it's different or not, it's part of what makes you who you are. And I had to really be a grown adult before I learned to appreciate and own my story. So can you still speak a little Farsi? Barely. But uh, what I can do is I understand it better. And so if you're on an airplane and you start speaking Farsi, don't assume <laughs> I don't understand what you're saying. That has happened a couple of times. Uh-huh. And what about French? Because you French, I still speak moderately well. So the teasing, I brought up the teasing because that factors into a big part of your personality, at least back then. And that was shyness. Oh, it's you painfully shy. You were very, shy. very shy. Yeah. And that worked its way, although you write that it wasn't until, well until in your adult years that you were able to get over the shyness. Yeah, I think some people, I don't know, some of you might be shy. Temperamentally, I just wasn't. I've tried to analyze it. Maybe it's because we moved around so much when I was a kid and I kind of played in my own little fantasy world and I was insecure because each time I got plopped down somewhere, I had to adjust to it. For whatever reason, I was painfully shy. And now, as you can tell, I simply cannot stop talking. (laughs) But it took a long time. I mean, look, I remember the first time I spoke in public, I was... In my early 30s, I, was, I had been appointed to run the Department of Planning and Development in the city of Chicago. Nobody told me public speaking was a part of that job when I signed on for it. In law school, and when I got called on, I would cringe. Like the first day I got called on twice, I didn't think there'd be a second day. I mean, I really shied away from public speaking. And when I had to give my first speech... I wrote on a note card in ink every, you know, the seven different points I wanted to make in this speech. And then I got nervous before the speech and I started to perspire. And I was holding the note card in my hand and all of the ink, I know, I know, it was a disaster. And I didn't notice it until right before I spoke and I opened my hand and it's blue and I cannot read anything on the paper and I'm trying to figure out what to do with the blue hand while I'm speaking. And look, I got through it. It wasn't pretty. But I got through it. And I think that's kind of the point, is is that I just had to keep trying, and I kept having to do more and more speaking. And every time, like the first time I did something on television, I could tell you exactly what that experience was like. It was also not great. But you repeat it over and over again. And I think part of the challenge is being honest with yourself about what you're not good at, and then Mm -hmm. deciding what you want to work on, and then just keep practicing it over and over again. And eventually, you start to enjoy it. But it took decades. Mm -hmm. Another reason why I brought up the bullying and the teasing is also because you write very forthrightly in your book about the color line and color issues and being light skin and being from a family that's fair skin. And you write two instances I found fascinating. One, that on a drive down south, you know, this whole movie Green Book about people, African Americans knowing where they could stay on those trips. But your family would do something different. As I mentioned, or you mentioned, Jonathan, my great-grandfather stayed at Tuskegee for most of his career. And when he wasn't there, he retired and he went back to Wilmington. And so in the summers, my mom and her sister and my grandparents would drive to either Tuskegee or Wilmington. And as you all now know from the movie, if for nothing else, there were a lot of places around the South where African-Americans could only stay in African-American colored only hotels and there were also patches where there were no hotels and so usually my grandparents would try to find people that they knew and stay with them in the areas where there were no hotels but they hit a patch where they didn't know anybody and there wasn't a hotel for colored people and so my grandmother who was fairer than I am with dead straight hair went and checked into the motel while my mother and her sister and my 
grandfather kind of hid out in the car, and when the clerk wasn't looking, they scurried into the motel. And so there was a certain privilege that went along with that complexion that my grandmother had, but then there was also blowback that went along with it too. And I know I tell a story about my grandmother taking me to Marshall Fields in Chicago. I don't know if any of you are from Chicago, but there was a walnut room, Chicago in the house. There was a restaurant called the Walnut Room. And when I was very young, around the Christmas holidays, we'd dress up and my grandmother and I would go down there. And I realized in years later that like people thought we were white. Only people that probably figured it out were the guys, the servers in the restaurant who were black. That was a privilege. And I now I look back and I was like, well, why would she take me to a restaurant where we knew black people weren't welcome? And I think she just wanted me to have a nice experience. But again, that was a privilege, one that I'm sure other people resented. And I asked my mother as an adult, well, how did other people feel? And she said, they probably wish they could go to that nice restaurant too, but recognize that that was a privilege that you had. There's a, both a benefit and a cost that goes along with it. And I think, frankly, in the black community, we still haven't reckoned reconciled with the challenges that we give each other, let alone what the rest of the world does to us because of hair texture and skin color. Well, hair texture, you also write in the book that of all the cousins, you're the one who didn't get the long, flowing, luxurious hair. Okay. (laughs) I didn't, and I wanted to have hair just like all of them. And so there is that, too. (laughs) For the folks in the audience who know Valerie or have worked with Valerie, you will understand the look she just gave me. (laughs) So for those of you who read Becoming or listened to Becoming, you know that Mrs. Obama had a plan. Like she had her checklist of things and this is the way her life was going to work. And what's fascinating is when you read Valerie's book, to see how similar these two women are from completely two different stories in Chicago, but really very similar ways of going about things. And you had a 10-year plan. One was graduate Stanford. Two, graduate from Michigan. Three, discover my career passion. Four, fall in love and marry. Five, have a baby. Six, be a fulfilled, satisfied, and happy wife and working mom. Of the six... Oh, good Lord. One of them didn't pan out. And you write about it in such a way that is, to my mind, reminiscent of Catherine Graham's autobiography and the way she wrote about her relationship about her mother, the way she wrote about the suicide of her husband, very raw and very real. And that was your writing about Bobby Jarrett, your husband, Laura's dad. How did you meet him and what went wrong? How much time you got? We got, you, you got two minutes. So I knew Bobby for as long as we lived in Chicago. So maybe You're right, age you had six. a crush on him since you were eight. I developed a crush on him at about age eight when he was 12. <laughs> well, he was the boy next door, figuratively, but really almost literally. My mother and his mother grew up in the same apartment building that my grandfather managed. Our fathers were friends. Our grandmothers were friends. He was a doctor. My father was a doctor. I used to go to church with my grandmother because he was an altar boy. And I used to always say, I'll go to church. And it was really just to see Bobby Jarrett. And of course, because I'm eight and he's 12, he paid no attention to me. Totally unrequited love all the way up until 25. And at 25, I know it took a long time to get him to turn around and look at me. But finally, at 25, we were at my cousin Kyla's wedding. 
I was standing outside with all my cousins laughing about the fact that her maid of honor had dropped the ring inside the church and it went all down the aisle. We read rehashed that a hundred times. And up walks Bobby Jarrett with my godfather, who was in his 90s by that point. And I saw him coming. I was like, he's coming my way. And lo and behold, he like looked at me for the first time. And I thought, I'm going to marry you because I've been trying to get you to look at me since I was eight. <laughs> and I gave about as much thought to it as that. And I did marry him. And as I said, plenty went wrong. And I think I thought I could just will him to be the fantasy that I wanted him to be. And my parents were so happy. And I thought, OK, he looks great on paper. And I'm thinking about the biological clock. So I got to get going at 26, the child that I was. And so I did marry him. And I tried really hard to make him into my father. And you know what? He just was not my dad. And I should have known that. I should have done a little more due diligence before I got into it. But I thought I was, it was important to be open about it because when it didn't work and when I finally just thought this isn't going to work and I can't make it work, I felt like a failure. And I don't want people to feel that way about marriages that don't work. Like you'd give it your best and if it doesn't work, then that's okay and you learn from it. And in a sense, I had been looking for Bobby to complete me and I wanted to be married so I would never be lonely well, let me tell you something. There is nothing lonelier than an unhappy marriage. So for all of you who are out there thinking, if I can just get married, I'll be happy. Well, do your homework first. Don't marry the wrong person. And if you do, get over it and move on. And I think, I know, I say in the book, I can say this now because it's been 30 years. I didn't say this at the time. But now with the benefit of lots of hindsight, I realize my failed marriage was one of the best things that ever happened to me. I thought, well, having a child would make it better. Another piece of advice, it does not. It makes it a lot more stressful. But having my daughter was by far the best thing that has ever happened to me in my life. And having her and looking at this child made me really question everything. And I thought, I'm going to a job that I feel very unfulfilling. I was at a really fancy big corporate law firm in Chicago. And I begin my book talking about looking out the window at this magnificent view of the Sears Tower, and I would sit in that office and cry. And I thought, I don't like my husband, I don't like my job, I do like my daughter, but I'm leaving her every day. And I thought, well, what am I gonna do about this? And it was the first time, Jonathan, that I actually remember listening to the most important voice, and that's the one inside. And I thought, I gotta get out of this marriage, and I gotta get out of this job, and I had a really dear friend who had worked for Mayor Harold Washington and had left his law firm to go work for the mayor in the law department. And he said these words I'll never forget. He said, why don't you consider public service? You'll feel a part of something bigger and more important than yourself. And that resonated with me. And so I took this leap of faith and I joined the law department of the city. And just one more bit on Barbara Bowman. For reasons I don't remember, she drove me to work my first day at City Hall. And maybe the reason she offered was to say this. As we pulled up in front, she said, I can't believe I paid all that tuition for you to come and work here. What are you doing with your life? And I was like, thanks, Mom. And I walked into City Hall. It took about two decades before she said to me, maybe two and a half decades before she said, okay, maybe you were right. It worked out okay for you. That seems you. to correspond with the Obama years. Yes, but it does. When you get the book, for those of you who don't have it, on page 49 is a very 
sort of back to Bobby Joe, very wrenching scene that Valerie writes about very openly and honestly. I'm not, I'm not going to read it. Don't give it away. Well, I'm not going to read it, but page 49. And then in terms, of, in terms of your daughter, in terms of Laura, you write, my daughter once said to me that my marriage was the best mistake I ever made. I know what she meant, but I would put it differently. In my wrong-headed, last-ditch attempt to save my marriage, the very best decision I ever made was having my daughter. When you read this book, the love for Laura leaps off the page. She's about to make you a grandmother in a, less than a month. Less than a month. Oh, my gosh. So excited. <laughs> I, I was expecting you to go on more. Well, I was going to say, on that note, my mother recently said to me, you know what, really the only reason to have kids is to have grandchildren. I'm like, Mom, I'm right here. I'm your kid. And what are you saying? She said, trust me, you'll understand. <laughs> and now you understand. And now I'm getting ready to understand. All right, I want to um, fast forward through, through some things. You went to work for the city. You went to work for Mayor Washington. He passes away in office. You decide to stay and work with Mayor Daley. It was there during Mayor Daley's administration that a young woman comes walking into your office by the name of Michelle Robinson. And I think you call it the best decision you, well, the aside from hire. Laura. The best, the best hire. hire the, I be- ever the best hire I ever made. The best hire you ever made. So she comes into the office, and you also write that you had no authority whatsoever to offer her a job, and yet you did. Have you met Michelle Obama? Who wouldn't offer her a job instantly? Yes, I did. And look, she walked in. She was tall. She was elegant, but simply dressed. No makeup. Hair pulled back. She looks me right in the face, shakes my hand, sits down with confidence. She sees her resume on my desk. She never mentioned a word. She figured I could read. And instead, she tells me her story. And she opens up. And, well, you all now know it. It's the quintessential American story. Growing up on the south side of Chicago, working class family, parents who valued education and excellence and instilled in both Michelle and her brother Craig this sense of to those who much is given, much is expected. And they were a humble family, but they gave them love and support. And also, as my parents didn't tell them you have to go do this, but whatever you do, do it really, really well and work hard at it. And interestingly, I left city government, I think, because of having my daughter, or left the law firm because of having my daughter. Michelle was searching for something from her big corporate law firm because the year before I met her, she lost both her father and her best friend. And so we were both motivated by the sense of life is short and you have to make it impactful. And I wanted to make my daughter proud of me and I didn't think she would be proud if I stayed in the firm. And Michelle wanted to do something that was meaningful because of these terrible losses that she'd had so early in her life. And we talked about that when we first met. And I think what's so important is sometimes you go in for a job interview and you're so busy selling yourself that you forget that there is more to you than just what's on your resume. And that she just struck me as a whole person. And also, like, 20 minutes into the interview was supposed to be just 20 minutes long. Hour and 10 minutes it lasted. She totally turned the tables on me and started asking me really, really hard questions about the job. And I had just been promoted. I had no answers for her. I didn't know. It's like, we'll figure it out. And she didn't think that wasn't quite good enough. And so really, to stop the conversation, I gave her the job offer. And I thought, <laughs> well, let's just end all these questions I can't answer. And wisely, she demurred and said, let me think about it. I'll get back to you. And so we're chatting a few days later. And I said, well, what do you think? And she said, 
we have a problem. And I said, well, what's the problem? And she said, well, my fiancé doesn't think it's a really good idea. <laughs> can I read this line? Yeah, you can read the line. So, <laughs> thinking she and I had really clicked, I wasn't expecting that wild card. All the other applicants were clamoring for a job in the mayor's office, and you write that you said to her, who the hell is your fiancé, and why do we care what he thinks? <laughs> I'm not proud, but I did say it, and I did wonder it, too. And so she laughed at me, and she said, look, he started his career as a community organizer on the south side of Chicago. He has some reservations about me going from a law firm right to a political mayor's office. You practiced law for four years for the city before you went to the mayor's office. And he kind of thought maybe we should all get together and talk it out. And I wisely said, okay. I wanted her. I would have... Of course I would go have dinner with her to try to convince her to do this. And at the dinner, what struck me most about them is not only were they obviously in love, they're about to get married, but the mutual respect that they have for each other. And for all the people who have since then, when they hear this story, said, well, why did she need to have her fiancé at the table? I say there wasn't a single decision in his entire career where Michelle Obama wasn't sitting right there for the decisions as well. And... If she had said, no, don't run for the Senate, although we did try to talk him out of running for the Senate, mm-hmm. or she had said, no, don't run for president, I don't think he would have done it. And so I think it was an indication of the kind of partnership that they were about to form where they made decisions together. They listened to one another. They both got me to open up. He got me talking about Iran, which I already told you I never did. But he said, like, where are you from? I said, Chicago. He said, did you grow up here? Yep, sure did. Were you born here? Well, no, I wasn't born here. He said, well, where were you born? And I said, long story, but I was born in Shiraz, Iran. And he leaned in and he said, tell me why. And he was curious, and he was interested, and and he wasn't making any judgments about it. And then he started telling me about his childhood in Indonesia. And we started comparing notes, and we had very similar experiences in these countries so far away, so different than our own, that it gave us an appreciation for the United States. It taught us that we could walk in a room and find something in common with anybody in the room because we were used to being with people who had very different backgrounds than our own. And we also talked about how we believe that the United States is a great country, already a great country, has been a great country. (laughs) Sorry, couldn't resist. Couldn't resist. I'm happy to segue. No, not yet. Not yet. (laughs) But... Also, even though we are great, we are not the only country on earth, and that we could actually learn a great deal outside of our shores. So we go from that dinner where you're about to hire Michelle Robinson to eight incredible, we'll skip the Senate. Too. Well, let's just mention she did come and work with me, so well, the yeah, dinner no, that, worked that, out okay. Right, no, it all, all, right, it all worked out. That, yeah. And the three of you end up, you describe yourself as, what, like, a big sister or a cousin? I used to be an older sister, but, oh. you know, with all that gray hair he has now, I think we're just siblings. <laughs> I don't want to be the older sister anymore. And so it, what ends up happening is there is this friendship this deeply rooted friendship yes. that's still ongoing. But in terms of the White House, you're the longest serving senior advisor to the president probably ever. Ever. Right? ever. In history. How crazy is that? That's like a Guinness Book of World Records. I don't know why anybody would leave one moment short of eight years. Well, I remember one of the first interviews I had with you in your office, not occupied by Kellyanne Conway. Um, LAUGHTER 
where I asked you whether it was you, my idea that he do this interview. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you said then you serve at the pleasure of the president, and if that means being the, there to click the lights off at the end of hopefully eight years, that's what you would do. And if you follow Valerie on Instagram, you saw there is that picture of you clicking the lights off. Is after the Obamas had already left for the inauguration, I'm still hanging around. <laughs> Secret <laughs> Service is finally, ma'am, you gotta go. You just gotta go. And so, well, one of the big things of many things from the eight years of the Obama years, and this is gonna be my segue, is you write about the birther controversy. And that was pushed by then private citizen Donald Trump. Michelle Obama writes about it in her book. You write about it in yours. How damaging was that? to, not to the administration, but to the president and his family and you. It put him and them in harm's way. It was very damaging. It was very irresponsible. It was hypocritical. It was known to be untrue. And you had to question, well, what was the motivation? And the motivation was clearly to delegitimize his candidacy and then his presidency. And as a result of it, it there are very few things that get me really angry. Well, maybe that's not true. Lately, there are more and more. There didn't used to be a lot that would get me angry, but I thought, why would you want to do that? Why would you want to do something that is intended to incite hatred and anger when you know that this is somebody who has a spouse and a family and children and people who love him, and he's another human being? Why would you feel the need to do that to another person. And I think now that seems kind of quaint and naive, right? But why? What was the point of that other than to try to, to hurt him? So of all the things that he's done, he being the current president, that's made you angry, is there one in particular? One that, per minute? <laughs> that has made you the most angry? Jonathan, look... Uh, <laughs> And I am rarely speechless, but where, where do we begin? It's just hard to say. I mean, I suppose right now I am apoplectic about what we've been seeing happening with these children on the border and how they're being treated and the callousness to go into court and basically justify the behavior, the thought that they are being treated in ways that we wouldn't treat animals and that somehow because they're here seeking a better life, that that's okay, that they're being used as a pawn in some sort of checkers game, I don't understand, I find unconscionable. I'm worried to death that by pulling out of the Iran deal that President Obama negotiated together with Great Britain and Germany and France and the UK and Russia and China, this was not just the United States alone. We formed a consortium of all the other world, major world powers to put pressure on Iran not to develop nuclear weapons and thinking that that solution was the one that keeps the world the safest, us the safest. And by pulling out on that, now we see that we're in this crazy kind of game of chicken where 10 minutes before striking Iran, fortunately, the president thinks better of it once he finds out that 150 people's lives could be destroyed. How do you not know about that before you order well, the strike? Well, I was about to ask you, you've been in the White House in a senior position. Did you believe that, that he didn't know that before? Well, it's you deeply troubling if it's true. I have no idea if it's true, because how do we know what is? But I think also... I'm glad my daughter's grown because I think that there are some reasonable expectations of what we hope for a president in terms of the tone he sets or she sets from the top, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm worried about that. Thank you. 
I'm worried about that right now and the message it's sending not only all of our citizens about what's acceptable behavior, because part of our society and the democracy relies not just on the laws, which are really important, and we tried hard to make sure those laws were supporting people's civil rights, but it also depends on social norms. And when you start to eat away at the fabric of those social norms, we're sending a message way beyond our shores. And part of what we try to do here as this beacon of hope for democracy is to set the tone by example. And if we're not adhering to those very important principles of a democracy, how are we going to be able to say to other countries, you should follow our lead? And then where do we all end up? Mm -hmm. So the tone from the top troubles me desperately as well. What I'm trying to figure out is what can I do to improve my kind of mental health at this moment in time? And I think the best thing I can do is to encourage people to get civically engaged and to vote and to care about who's running for office. And I talk about it in my book, Going Through the Stages of Grief After the Last Election, and that I think I described it as kind of gut-wrenching. And I sometimes went through all those stages in the same day. They just, anger and denial kept coming back around, back around. And I think out of that, I thought, well, what do we do? And what troubled me most, because I couldn't figure out what happened exactly, but I do know that 43% of eligible voters did not vote. And when that happens, it's not a democracy. And so Mrs. Obama, last summer, and I started an organization called When We All Vote. And it's nonpartisan, and we intentionally decided to do it nonpartisan, not because we aren't strong Democrats, but because there's something going on in our culture that is allowing people to feel disengaged and shunning institutions rather than thinking that they are empowered to go in there and improve institutions. And because our democracy rests on a whole range of institutions, and without government, we don't have a democracy, I say if you don't like the people who are representing you, change them. And I'm going to start with changing this one. Mm -hmm. And so we've got 24 to choose from. I think it's 25 now. Wait, Didn't who, somebody else announce today? Who announced today? Somebody announced today. Yeah, some, guy some, some guy. Some guy. Some we'll guy. know who he is soon enough. <laughs> we'll okay. But yes, somebody so, else announced all today. All right, so now there are 25 people An running. embarrassment of riches, don't you think? Yes, an embarrassment of riches. So among them, anyone catching your fancy? A lot of them are catching my fancy, but you know what? I'm well, yeah, I know. I'm not going to answer your question. I know. So, I mean, I gotta ask. So this is the thing. So I've spoken with several of them, and I give them all my advice because my view is this: whoever emerges as the nominee for the Democratic Party, I am going to get behind and work a thousand percent because they're all better than what we have now. Every one of them, even the guy I don't know, he's better. <laughs> <laughs> even he's better. So that's kind of my attitude. And I say the same thing to all of them. I say, look, be authentic. Don't be a fake. The American people can snuff out a fake, which means you have to know why you're doing this. You have to realize that it is a marathon, the campaign is, and you've got to get out there every single day and earn the trust and confidence of the American people. And that's as it should be, because you are their servant. And so you have to prove to them that you are worthy, not just with a vision, but how you're going to execute that vision, particularly in this climate that is so toxic. What are you going to do to bring us back together again and make us feel as though you know, we have more in common than we have differences? And that's between social media and the tone from the top right now. That's not an easy thing to do. And I also say to them, and this is, I think, perhaps, and I said this a few weeks ago, not because of current events, don't beat up on the other guy or gal. 
not for two reasons. Number one, I can figure out about them. I don't need you to tell me about them in the Democratic Party. But also, if you do that, then don't we go into the general election with whoever is the nominee in a weakened position? And we can't afford to be in a weakened position. We have to be in a strong position after the primary. So you've had candidates talk to you. Is, was one of them Vice President Joe Biden? We're not going to get into the individual names, but <laughs> you can assume that I've talked to several of them. Okay, fine. So, but let me ask... Well, the reason why is, first of all, I want them to be able to come to me and talk to me without wondering whether or not I'm going to tell Jonathan Capehart everything I said, <laughs> and to whom, right? Okay. Otherwise, they won't call, and well, I like that they call. Well, I'll come at it this way. Because <laughs> he's a really good reporter. The, the vice president is in... Is this your segue into talking about Vice President Biden? Well, I'm getting there, okay. yeah. Right. So, I mean, he's now in another controversy, this time talking about past segregationist senator he worked with, which, you know, okay, I can understand why you're bringing that up. But what rankled me is the fact that he said that this senator never called him boy, always called him son. I don't know why he said that. Call me crazy, but that's... I I don't know why he said that. The whole thing, that's the most problematic thing in that... Well, as you know, I have worked with people with whom I strongly disagree on a whole host of issues. Yeah, for eight years. For eight years, I worked with a whole lot of people I didn't agree on. So maybe he didn't choose the right example. Who knows? But I think what we have to do is realize, look, don't let one thing make you decide, okay, I can't support you for president. Because nobody is perfect, right? We all have baggage. And they're all perfectly legitimate. Everybody should be talking about whatever they want to talk about. As I say, they should all be prepared to lift up their hood, kick their tires, figure out whether or not this is a person that you can trust. And everybody has to kind of make their own judgment on what those issues might be, right? Mm -hmm. But as I said, there's nobody in this field so far, including the guy we don't know, who I don't think would be better (laughs) than what we have. And so you can't, and this is not, I'm not talking about Vice President Biden in this context, although he, he had a pretty good quote that he used to say all the time when he was campaigning for other people. He said, look, don't compare them to the almighty, compare them to the alternative. And I think there's something, there is something to that, right? Yeah, especially for 2020. In the, in the did little... Did you just... What, did, what are you saying? Oh, because of the stakes? Yeah, because of the oh, stakes okay. now. No, All it's right. for real. It's, like, it so, is like, for really real. real. It's Not for real. Not even for I real. Mean, for real. Like, for real? For real. <laughs> it's intense. All right. We're laughing, but this is no laughing matter. I mean, no, I'm really... Seriously. This is serious. In the little bit of time that we have left, I want to bring you back to the book. You were writing about like trying to juggle everything, being oh, a, a working mother. And I failed to note the page number here, so my apologies. But you talked about the fact that at that time, women were all about, in the workplace, all about showing how you're just like the guys. Like nothing else was different, you're just like the guys. And Mistake. You, and you write about your silence and not saying anything. My silence stemmed mostly from my shame and feeling alone, as though I were the only overwhelmed working mother I told myself that if I was just smarter, more organized, and more efficient, if I just tried harder and slept less, perhaps it all wouldn't be so hard. As women of my generation fought to gain equity in the workplace, we made an unspoken pact to pretend, even to one another, that we had it all under control. We didn't, we couldn't possibly. What is the hope? I hear a smattering of golf applause. But Working mothers. But what do you say to, or what did you say to Laura? What do you say to Laura's friends, this next generation of young women who are trying to juggle it all? Are they more aware and more open 
to no longer being silenced? Or has that been carried over generation to Have generation? you worked with any millennials? Oh, yeah, they're not so quiet about this stuff, <laughs> which is good. I obviously have a great relationship with my daughter, and I've always talked to her very openly. And I, I told her the mistakes I made of trying to, you know, it's like Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire, you're dancing backwards with high heels on. And I thought that it was important to prove my worthiness by pretending there was no life outside. And I thought that if I didn't do that, then the guys wouldn't take me as seriously. And when I started verbalizing what was going on in my life and I was in an environment where people actually cared, they responded to my needs. I mean, I had a great mentor who supported me in crazy ways. She'd come to my home after work so I could put Laura to bed and then we would work after Laura went to sleep. Most people aren't going to do that for you. But if I had never told her I was a single mom and I needed to get home for bedtime, then how would she have ever known? And so I am encouraged that this next generation is a little bit more willing to, first of all, to expect more from their partners, their spouses, in terms of contributing. I know my daughter and her husband have had many a conversation about their joint expectations in parenting. We just gave them a baby shower yesterday, and it was co-ed. And people are like, well, why are the guys coming to the shower? And I said, from the beginning, they're starting this as a partnership, and they're doing this together. You laugh. You try a co-ed shower. It was fun. No games. We didn't play games. (laughs) But I think part of my message is, look, the question is, can you have it all? Well, we set an unrealistic expectation that having it all means doing everything to perfection. And I thought I was superhuman. And I could do it all. I could work all day. I could come home. I could put Laura to bed. I could work some more. And then I would make baby food from scratch in the middle of the night. What was I thinking? Don't do that to yourself. Don't set yourself up to think that everything has to be absolutely perfect. And I think the best example of that would be Laura. When I started my book tour, Laura flew out to Chicago and was interviewed with me. And the person who was moderating the conversation asked Laura, What surprised you in the book about your mother? And my daughter said, I had no idea she felt so guilty. Mm. She said she was a perfect mom. From her vantage point, not from mine. From mine, I was a lousy mother, and I, and I was lousy at everything when she was really young. And that's not how she saw the world. And so I think I want working parents to give themselves a little bit of a break, to realize that you are doing a great job, and don't let perfection be the definition, the almighty comparison exactly, but also to remember that Life has multiple chapters, and they each have trade-offs, and you make decisions, and then you have to live with the consequences of those decisions. But for me, what I realized when I started listening to my voice, and I started realizing how much power I could have if I spoke up, and I started making decisions where I listened to the gut inside of me as opposed to what everybody else was defining as my life, that's when the adventure began. Not craving the comfort of the straight line that I had charted out for myself, but the exhilaration that comes from taking advantage of opportunities that knock at inopportune moments, and the exhilaration that comes from being scared to death about trying something new and then figuring out, oh, I can do that, and conquering it, and then swerving again. So zigzag is kind of my message to the young folks. Your word is embrace the zag. I think in Michelle Obama's book, it's embrace the swerve. All of the above. Because if Michelle Obama and I both had not swerved out of what was expected of us into public service, who knows where we would all be today, right? Right. You might be mayor of Chicago. (laughs) You decided not to run for mayor of Chicago because you didn't want to be in elective office. 
You just Picture didn't want to. Your face. You know what? I'm just trying. <laughs> I thought about it long and hard. At one point in my life, I thought about throwing my hat in the ring to replace President Obama when he was first elected in the Senate. And I think in the end, I have come to appreciate that there are many ways to serve. And you have to do a gut check before you do elected office. And just as I described my early days in city government, where it's 24-7 and people come up to you in the grocery store and the dry cleaners and lobby your daughter, all of that is what you have to be prepared for when you run for office. And at this stage of my life, don't hate me, but I wake up every single day and I do exactly what I want to do. Right? I mean, I worked really hard to get to this point. And, and I work, I think, as hard as ever, but on issues I care about. And I define them. I set the time. I set the place. I determine the agenda. And I also really am looking forward to being a grandmother. And I don't want to be a public official when I'm trying to be a grandma. It's just me. Everybody has to make their own decisions. Mm-hmm. So we started this conversation by talking about sort of the <laughs> mantra of yes. your parents about your willingness to work hard and be resilient and have a little luck and you can only take advantage of luck if you are fully prepared. And it's right after President Obama has been elected. On election night, there's a 60 Minutes interview. You're sitting with your parents watching this and I'm going to read what you wrote. At the end of the interview, my mother looked over at me. How did you know that he could win, she asked. Not that he would, but even that he could. Because of you two, I said, a bit of surprise in my voice. Because you both raised me to believe that if you work twice as hard as anyone else and sacrifice for what you believe in and luck is on your side, the sky's the limit. She shook her head and said softly, I never believed any of that. (laughs) And the kicker, my dad chuckled and said he agreed with her. Valerie... Wait. Read the rest. The best part. He left out the rest. Oh, well, that, Read for me, the that rest. Was a, oh, I'm sorry. I stared at them in disbelief. For the first time, I realized my parents had raised me aspirationally, instilling in me a set of core beliefs that they didn't actually hold themselves. <laughs> that here's the best line, and I did underline this. Their gift to me was not to shackle me with their reality, but to prepare me to own the full potential of mine. And that is the best way to end this conversation with Valerie Jarrett, author of Finding My Voice, My Journey to the West Wing and the Path Forward. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank Thank you. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.